from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. Uh, no news really about George Zimmerman or Trayvon Martin this week. Uh, Zimmerman got arraigned and he's probably going to be out on bail. I don't really, I, to tell you the truth, I, I'm not following it as closely as some people are. There seems to be kind of an O.J. Simpsons-esque frenzy. You know, when the O.J. Simpson trial was going on, people were like, oh my God, he sneezed in the courtroom today. Ugh. Every tiny little uh, moment was being reported as if it was incredibly huge news. But uh, I did come across two interesting news stories this week. One was about a woman named Marissa Alexander. And Davey D blogged about this on his uh, Hip Hop and Politics blog. And he says uh, he had a, an article or a letter from her and her lawyer uh, talking about um, the, her situation. Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, she said, I am a mother of three children, but at the present time I'm not able to be with them due to the circumstances that will soon be made clear. Uh, at one point, in an unprovoked jealous rage, my husband violently confronted me while using the restroom. He assaulted me, shoving, strangling, and holding me against my will, preventing me from fleeing all while I begged him to leave. Uh, I was able to make it to the garage and then I realized I didn't have my keys so she tried to go back into the house and he was there and he was trying to assault her again. She had a concealed weapon. Uh, she had a handgun which she has a concealed weapons permit for it. Uh, the police had been alerted to the fact that her husband had been very violent on several other occasions. She fired the weapon into the air. No one got hurt but she is still facing 20 years in prison. And this happened in Florida. <clears throat> the woman who prosecuted her case is named Angela Corey, who is the same prosecutor in the George Zimmerman case. So the fact that she's now facing 20 years in prison while George Zimmerman, it took a long time for her to be arrested. Uh, this is raising a number of questions about, you know, why if they're clearly, I mean, they're sort of similar cases, but she didn't even hurt anybody. Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. This woman never killed anybody, never hurt anybody even with the gun, but she's still facing 25 years in prison and that's messed up. And a number of people are saying it has to do with the fact that she's a black woman uh, and that's why she's facing such uh, disproportionate prosecution. And it'll be very interesting to see where that case goes next. And there's a petition on change.org to say, you know, this is messed up. And she was used clearly, this was clearly a case of self-defense. And we wish for the justice system to recognize that and let her go and the rest of it. Anyway, I told you last week about uh, Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., who was a 68-year-old man who was shot to death by the New York Police Department, White Plains, New York. And um, 
I said last week that I wasn't. It seemed weird that police would go and break his door down and shoot him to death for no reason. And I'm not saying cops couldn't do that because some cops are just crazy. But it turns out that the cops' point of view is a different story. Uh, so this is an article from the USA Today. Police said Chamberlain was, quote, emotionally disturbed and screaming at officers, and they were concerned someone else might have been in the apartment in some type of danger. An autopsy showed that Chamberlain had been drinking. White Plains Public Public Safety Commissioner David Chong said Chamberlain attacked officers with a hatchet and knife and ignored orders to drop his weapons. Despite being shot with a stun gun and beanbags, police said Chamberlain kept coming at them and was killed when Officer Anthony Corelli fired a shot that went through Chamberlain's arm and into his chest as he was about to stab an officer. Family members who were shown video and audio of the incident by Westchester County District Attorney's Office said police taunted and used slurs against Chamberlain in a standoff that escalated until police broke down his door. The audio was recorded by a telephone hooked up to Chamberlain's life alert device and the officer was identified in the transcript. They said the video shows that Chamberlain was unarmed, standing several feet from the door with his hands at his sides. Once the door was taken from its hinges, the family and its lawyer said police immediately without warning shot Chamberlain with a taser. So there are clearly two different stories here. I'd be very interested to know more about, you know, what the video footage shows, maybe take a look at it myself. Um, but yeah, it still sounds like a really messed up situation and that some people in the police uh, department here were in the wrong. And I want to know more about that. So we're going to keep an eye peeled on the story about this Kenneth Chamberlain senior guy, because it clearly sounds to me like a case of police brutality. But uh, yeah, it's not as though they went in for no reason. Anyway, moving on, uh, there was a really weird story. You know what? We're going to end with that. Hang on. I'll come back to that story. Let's talk about Coney real quick. Uh, I'm, there was, um, okay, so this, um, the, the, the news report that came out not long ago about um, the invisible children working with the Ugandan military and providing information about a political opponent of the president and how it was very concerning and uh, yeah, now they had uh, in on Democracy Now. Amy Goodman interviewed a guy named Milton Alamadi, who was a former uh, child soldier with the LRA, who had been you know abducted by them and and so on and so forth. And he pointed out that this is very disturbing. Uh, this memo that talked about invisible children providing a tip to the Ugandan intelligence services, and he says this quote. As many people familiar with Uganda know, people who are arrested by intelligence services in Uganda are subjected to torture. Subsequent to his arrest, nine other Ugandans were arrested and now they face treason charges. And treason in Uganda is published punishable by the death penalty. So it's a very worrying point of view that this guy brings out. And uh, there's another guy named Victor Ochin who... Uh, actually, I think Victor Ochin was the guy who was the... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the person who was involved with the, uh, LRA, um, Milton Alamadi. Yeah. Milton Alamadi, that guy I just quoted, he was from Black Star News. Sorry about that. Uh, Victor Ochin was a survivor of the LRA war and he is a director with a group called African Youth Initiative Network based in Northern Uganda. So that was, um, a quote from Vic Milton Alamadi. And then Victor Ochin said, 
the more the victim gets empowered, he says that the, the campaign to make Coney famous is dumb because he says the more the victim gets empowered, the more Coney becomes irrelevant. And then the victims are appealing. They're saying, don't put on the T-shirt with Coney's face on it. Don't put on the promotional material. Invisible children remain completely adamant. And now at this point, they care for the video more than they care for the people. So he's saying that Invisible Children is actually being counterproductive and, and drawing attention away from the suffering of the children involved and trying to make Coney famous. Now, um, you know, Milton Alamadi says that a peaceful solution, a negotiated solution uh, is possible. He says, let's say the United States took a serious interest and asked an individual like Jimmy Carter, for example, to be involved, and it was given the global visibility that it deserved, I think there could be a successful negotiated outcome. But the chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court has said that every time Coney has tried to do some sort of negotiated surrender or whatever, he's just used that as a delaying tactic and regrouped and committed more violence after that. So I'm a little skeptical of this claim from Milton Alamadi in Black Star News about how um, you know, it, it, it's possible to have a negotiated uh, settlement with Kony. But at the end of the interview, Amy Goodman asks, uh, you know, the president of Uganda, Museveni, has been in power for 26 years. Kony's been operating all that time. If Kony is gone, Amy Goodman asked, Museveni perhaps doesn't get that level of support to fight Kony. So she asked, does Museveni need Kony? And Victor Ochin, the former LRA soldier, says, at this point, I wouldn't say Museveni needs Kony. Kony, looking at his intentions, his principles, his operations, uh, I think is just a cult organization focused on killing the innocent civilian. Kony doesn't have any particular political agenda, which is clear, and that's why they end up causing all these atrocities on the innocent people who know nothing to do with politics. If he needed Museveni, he could have gone to Kampala to fight Museveni, but why does he end up fighting the children who know nothing to do with politics? Um, so it's an interesting perspective, and, and as always, I'm, I'm keenly intrigued to know more about different people's points of view. I don't agree with uh, Alamadi, who says that there's a negotiation uh, possible to bring about a peaceful solution. But, I, I mean, I wish there were, and, may, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong about that, but I'm just not um, confident that Coney could be arrested in a peaceful way. So I don't know. I'm still reluctant to support Invisible Children's call for U.S. military advisors, but I don't really know that I have confidence in some other way of going about it. At the same time, uh, we saw a really interesting documentary film called How to Start a Revolution here in Madison as part of the um, Wisconsin Film Festival that's taken place this weekend, and they had a guy named Gene Sharp who's written a book called From Dictatorship to Democracy, and it's all about nonviolent methods of bringing about change. And it's a really interesting look at the guy. If you ever have a chance to see this documentary film, How to Start a Revolution, I definitely recommend that you take a look. And Gene Sharp's whole thing is about using nonviolent tactics in a way that is not just passive and uh, for the sake of demonstration, but for, in a tactical way in order to bring about real change, especially in places that are being run by tyrants. And he makes a very good case about, and they talk to a lot of leaders of nonviolent resistance movements in Serbia and in Egypt and in Syria and other places, using the techniques and the theories promoted by Gene Sharp in order to topple these dictators and and they in many cases they've been successful so 
uh, it gives me hope that there are other ways of non-violently resisting warlords and, and dictatorships that w may be useful for us to go ahead, especially with dealing with people like Coney. Now, that kind of feels at the same time I say that, it feels a little bit like a pipe dream, and it seems like, you know, Coney's not just going to immediately acquiesce. And the situation with Coney is a little different than a dictatorship, because Sharp points out that a uh, dictatorship rests on certain pillars, the police, the military, Military education systems, etc. And in order to topple the dictatorship, those pillars have to be weakened. And Coney doesn't have any of those. Coney has a few soldiers that they can use to, to brutalize and, and mutilate and torture people. And that's how... So it's a different situation. But... Uh, I don't know, whatever. It's it's an interesting movie. I definitely recommend you take a look. Uh, it's called How to Start a Revolution. And there's a trailer on YouTube. And I will post a link to the trailer so you can check that out. Meanwhile, uh, you probably heard the news reports from Afghanistan this week about U.S. troops posing with body parts of Afghan bombers. Uh, there's a whistleblower from the U.S. military who released pictures of these guys, and it's really gruesome. Uh, there's a shot in this article, which is not for the faint-hearted. Um, the 82nd Airborne arrived at the police station uh, February 2010. Um, they posed for photos next to Afghan police, grinning while some held another squatted beside the corpse's severed legs. Uh, after pinning a few fingerprints, they posed to the next remains, again grinning and muttering for photographs. Um, two soldiers posed holding a dead man's hand with the middle finger raised. A soldier leaned over the bearded corpse while clutching the man's hand. Someone placed an unofficial platoon patch reading Zombie Hunter next to the other remains and took a picture. Um, and George Wright, an army spokesman, said it's a violation of army standards to pose with corpses for photographs outside of officially sanctioned purposes. Such actions fall short of what we expect of our uniformed service members in deployed areas. And there's been a, a little bit of commentary saying, well, these guys have been through so much and this and that. But obviously this is so such a hideous thing and it is something that will make... You know, again, if we're trying to win hearts and minds of people in Afghanistan, this isn't helping, guys. So, I mean, what the heck? It's, ah, it's just, it's creepy, and it's another indicator that we're not, I mean, this is the news that's coming out of Afghanistan. As I said before, I think it's time for us to go. Meanwhile, there's a really interesting article that was uh, forwarded to me by Blue Hillman, and uh, thanks to him for that. And it's called The Stoner Arms Dealers, and it comes to us from... Um, Rolling Stone, so thanks to him for uh, forwarding this to me, and it's about these two guys from the U.S. who went into uh, arms dealing in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and their names are Pakuz and Divaroli, and uh, the article, page two, says, uh, they picked the perfect moment to get into the arms business. To fight simultaneous wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq, the Bush administration had decided to outsource virtually every facet of America's military operations, from building and staffing army bases to hiring mercenaries to provide security for diplomats abroad. After Bush took office, private military contracts soared from $145 billion in 2001 to $390 billion in 2008. Federal contracting rules were routinely ignored or skirted, and military industrial giants like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin cashed in as war profiteering went from war crime to business model. Why shouldn't a couple of inexperienced newcomers like Pakus and Diveroli get in on the action? After all, the two friends were after the same thing as everyone else in the arms business. Lots and lots and lots of money. 
Quote, I was going to make millions, Pakuz says. I didn't plan on being an arms dealer forever. I was going to use the money to start a music career. I had never even owned a gun, but it was thrilling and fascinating to be in a business that decided the fate of nations. Nobody else our age was dealing weapons on an international level. And that's very true, but it's still, uh, yeah, it's kind of a messed up story. It's fascinating to say the least. And it's all about how they got into this so-called gray market of dealing guns to people. And, uh, yeah, there was a Nicolas Cage movie called The Lord of War, which I never actually saw. Uh, John Cusack was also in a movie where he played an arms dealer. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of disturbing, of course, because these conflicts could not rage on without... Uh, the support of arms dealers and somebody supplying the guns to these people who are engaged in these prolonged conflicts. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of disturbing, I think. If you're making your living off of selling guns to people, you're going to convince yourself, oh, I'm selling them to the good guys. But I think there's bound to be times when you're like, what are people doing with those guns? And, you know, as um, Saul Williams said, which one is keeping it real, son? Who manufactured your steel, son? So there are a lot of questions, I think, about how uh, guns get sold and to whom and all the rest of it. Anyway, ending the current events section is an article from Today, the Today Show on NBC. And uh, they had a thing on their blog, their health blog. The headline is, for cosmetic surgery, chins are the new breasts. Chin plants are on the rise. And it's all about how there's an explosion in people getting chin surgery. Chin plants, i.e. surgical procedures that enhance and define the chin line, increased 71% between 2010 and 2011, outdoing breast augmentation, liposuction, and even Botox, which increased a mere 5% in the last year. Uh, according to new statistics released by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Having a strong chin is not something you can gain via diet or exercise, says Dr. Derek Antel, a Manhattan plastic surgeon and clinical professor of surgery at Columbia University. You're either born with it or you see a surgeon to improve it. So uh, 21,000 Americans opted for the operation last year alone, the ASPS reports. And, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's, again, more of our fascination and obsession with looking perfect and going into some pretty extreme lengths in order to look good and, and uh, the pressure we get from Hollywood and advertising and the rest of it, trying to put pressure on us. You don't look good enough. You have to look differently. You have to change the way you look and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, it's all very messed up. And I would say to anybody listening, hey, you look fine the way you are, I assume, and I should also point out that that article gave me a chance to say the name Chin, like in Mike Chin. All right, let's talk economics. Uh, another article from Democracy Now! They did an interview with a guy named Greg Grandin, uh, who's a very interesting sort of expert on... Um, on democ- he was on Democracy Now! He's an expert on Columbia. Uh, he is a historian. He's a professor of Latin American history at New York University and uh, the author of Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States, and the Rise of the New Imperialism. And his most recent book, Fordlandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History. And he was talking about what was going on in Columbia because there was a big... The, the big news out of Columbia was this civil, uh, the Secret Service hired a bunch of prostitutes to come back to their room and then one of them wouldn't pay $47 to this prostitute and so there's this big argument and that's how the story got out and now a bunch of people in the Secret Service are resigning and there's a whole scandal but 
the thing that most media outlets are not talking about is the fact that there's this free trade deal between Colombia and the United States that's been cooking for 10 years and it finally got the go ahead and it's probably going to go through. And Amy Goodman asked this guy, Greg Gandon, to talk about the Colombia free trade agreement. And he says uh, that's something Obama ran against as a candidate, and he said it would be bad for U.S. workers. And then pretty much as soon as he got into office, he started to shift gears. And he had left most of the Bush team in the U.S. Trade Representative office, just as he did with Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and all the rest of those dinguses who were responsible for the 2008 economic collapse. Uh, the same is true about the U.S. Trade Representative office. And so the point that he, the other point he made is this, and this is really important. I'm quoting here from his comments. Colombia. There's a couple of things to know about Colombia. Colombia is the worst country in terms of labor organizing, hands down. Last year, 2011, 40 unionists were killed, and that was 60% of the global total. The human rights community, the labor community in the United States has been asking Obama administration to basically build into any free trade agreement a number of guarantees. They want to see real change on the ground before they go forward, say a three-year period where there would be no murders of trade unionists, no executions. The White House refused that. They asked for a mechanism built into the trade agreement that would void the treaty if executions started to rise again. The White House refused that. So the, there's this, you know, again, the U.S., as we did with NAFTA, as we did with, we tried to do with the multilateral agreement on investment before a bunch of people stood up and said, no, we don't want that thing going through, and it got defeated, uh, in your face, WTO. Um, there's a sense in which this is going to, you know, there's a, there's a desire among very wealthy people to have these trade agreements whereby any barrier to free trade, which is often things like minimum wage laws, environmental protections, uh, workers' safety regulations, these are all considered barriers to free trade. And these free trade agreements are designed to knock those down. And as a result, you have lower and lower standards for the environment and for worker safety and you know union organizing, which is a right protected by the International Labor Organization organization and it's it's messed up that the that you know the reason why wages tend to be so low in these countries is because there are uh, the, the, trying to organize a union can get you killed as we saw here 40 people were killed for trying to do that in Colombia last year that's just last year so why would you try to organize a union if you're going to end up getting killed and so as a result there are very poor you know minimum wage laws the environmental standards are bad worker safety is horrible so it's really a messed up situation and it's really sad to see Obama engaged in this sort of thing of oh well we need to have free trade everywhere and never mind about the potential we could have as a powerful wealthy trading partner uh, moving in and helping uh, people in other countries to establish good worker safety uh, no no never mind that we just need to have free trade so uh, that's disappointing. Also disappointing was an article from the New York Times which talked about uh, increasingly in Europe suicides, quote, by economic crisis. And it's all about how um, this guy in Vicenza, Italy hanged himself in the warehouse of his construction business and three weeks earlier Giovanni Schiavon, 59, a contractor, shot himself in the head at the headquarters of his debt-ridden construction company. Um, and, and it's the, about this pattern of people who have been killing themselves in Greece, Ireland, and Italy as a way to show that this economic crisis, these austerity measures are having really severe uh, 
obviously deadly impacts on working people and uh, the suicide rate in Greece among men increased more than 24% from 2007 to 2009. In Ireland during the same period, suicides among men rose more than 16% and researchers say the trend has intensified this year as government austerity measures took hold and compounded the hardships for many. While suicides often, and this is an important point, while suicides often have many complex causes, researchers have found that severe economic stress corresponds to higher suicide rates. Quote, financial crisis puts the lives of ordinary people at risk, but a much more dangerous, but much more dangerous is when there are radical cuts to social protection, said David Stuckler, a sociologist at the University of Cambridge, who led a study published in The Lancet that found a sharp rise in suicides across Europe, particularly in seriously affected countries like Greece and Ireland from 2007 to 2009, years that coincided with the downturn. Quote, austerity can turn a crisis into an epidemic, Mr. Stuckler added. So next time you hear people talking about, oh, we have to, you know, cut back on entitlements and we need more austerity measures, just remember that this sort of thing tends to happen. And it's not as though we can never cut anything because we're worried that people are going to go kill themselves. But again, suicide tends to be a desperate reaction to a desperate situation. And it should be a wake up call for people who are watching this sort of thing in order to say, hey, wait a minute, this thing we wanted to do uh, is causing this severe, dangerous situation for people. Meanwhile, Business Week had a very interesting article about Wisconsin because, as many of you know, uh, Wisconsin, the governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who came into office about two years ago, talking about we got to create jobs, we got to create jobs, and we're going to cut social spending and that same sort of austerity thing. We got to cut taxes to bring business in, and that'll gr- help grow jobs. And he destroyed the public sector unions in order to bring about more job creation and business week says that's not happened illinois ranked third while wisconsin placed 42nd 42nd out of 50 that's the bottom fifth in the most recent bloomberg economic evaluation of states index which includes personal income tax revenue and employment Illinois gained 32,000 jobs, and they're contrasting uh, what Scott Walker did here uh, with the uh, governor across the state line in Illinois, uh, that the his Democratic counterpart in Illinois, Pat, Pat Quinn, is killing jobs. And uh, it's actually not the case. Illinois gained 32,000 jobs in the 12 months ending in February, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics found. Wisconsin, where Walker promised to create 250,000 jobs with the help of business business tax breaks lost 16,900. So Walker's not achieving the thing he thought he would achieve. And Quinn from Illinois said they had the worst job record in the whole country dead last. We certainly don't want to follow his prescriptions when it comes to economic growth. So even if you take it as a given that, oh, these cuts are necessary in order to create growth, it doesn't even work. So let's put an end to the stupid notion that just cutting taxes is the only we need and it'll create jobs and it'll be the boon to everybody. It will all benefit from it. Doesn't work. Doesn't happen. Stop lying. Meanwhile, Business Week had another very interesting article, which is called, here's the headline, How to Pay No Taxes, 10 Strategies Used by the Rich. And this is from Jesse Drucker, uh, posted last week. And it's all about how you can get away from, you know, doing taxes. And he says, 
For the 400 U.S. taxpayers with the highest adjusted gross income, the effective federal income tax rate, what they actually pay, fell from almost 30% in 1995 to just over 18% in 2008, according to the Internal Revenue Service. And for the approximately 1.4 million people who make up the top 1% of taxpayers, the effective federal income tax rate dropped from 29% to 23% in 2008. It may seem too fantastic to be true, but the top 400 end up paying a lower rate than the next 1,399,600 or so. That's not just good luck. I'm still quoting the article here. It's often the result of hard work, as suggested by some of the strategies below. Much of the income among the top 400 derives from dividends and capital gains generated by everything from appreciated real estate, yes, there is some left, to stocks and the sale of family businesses. Um, so it, it's all about these ways that it reminds me of the Simpsons when, uh, Mr. Burns is like this, this government's trying to tax us to death. And Smithers says, actually, sir, uh, because of your uh, careful corporate accounting and tax loopholes, we, we pay only one cent per year. And, and Burns goes, you're right. We're getting screwed. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's all about how the rich people get out of paying their taxes. And this is something people like me have been saying for a long time. Close these loopholes, uh, raise the interest rate, raise the tax rate on uh, capital gains like Mitt Romney, who makes all his money from uh, he talks about, oh, I'm unemployed. I don't have a job right now. Don't give me that. You're making millions off these capital gains and stock holdings and all the rest of it. So I don't want to hear that. Uh Meanwhile, uh, Business Week also had another article uh, about this group called ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, and they're this lobbying group that pushes legislation that benefits free markets and all the rest of it. But uh, as this article points out, it's that... uh, they they tend to be they tend to support legislation promoted by Republicans. So even though Alec calls itself nonpartisan, they have this thing where they basically you know for all effects and intents and purposes they're only ever promoting Republican legislation. And so it says uh, I'm not saying it's wrong to feverishly applaud Ronald Reagan. I'm saying that only in the most thinly defensible legalistic sense can Alec call itself nonpartisan. And the council doesn't really support free markets either. It supports the companies that fund it. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because there are a number of companies that are fleeing Alec including McDonald's and Coca-Cola and others. And so it's very interesting to see the large companies that are ostensibly always working together for their own benefit. Well, some of this legislation benefits some of these companies more than others. And when companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola realize hey, wait, this organization isn't pursuing our interests. It's kind of like when Newt Gingrich last week was like, "Uh, Fox News is biased against us suddenly they realize, hey, wait, maybe this is kind of messed up that there's this monolithic entity promoting certain kinds of, uh, you know, doing stuff. Anyway, moving on. High-frequency trading. Oh, doctor, there's been a number of articles about this this week, and I know I have a a Google news alert about high-frequency trading, so I'm getting all the news about it all the time, but I was very interested to see there's a Singapore website. uh, It's headquartered in Singapore called Economy Watch. Follow the money. And they had an article, and the headline was, High-frequency trading, Wall Street's latest scam. They're calling it a scam. And they had an interview with a, uh, a fund manager named Whitney Tilson, 
And that person said, it appears exchanges are conspiring with a privileged group of high-frequency traders in a massive fraud. And I've explained how this thing works. Um, and, and so that the, most of the article is going through this. And these people are talking about how it's a scam. It's toxic equity trading. And uh, it's 50 to 70 percent of traded volume on the New York Stock Exchange. And they call it high speed gouging of retail investors and large institutions. It makes up the bulk of trading. It has led directly to Goldman Sachs pulling in record profits and, according, and, and recording 46 $100 million trading days when the economy is dead and corporate M&A activity is at record lows. And they talk about how they do it and liquidity rebate traders and predatory algorithmic traders and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of detail about how it works. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's again interesting to see people in the financial sector rebelling against this too because it, it creates this rift between the high frequency traders and sort of the rest of the trading community and whether this tiny group of high frequency traders that have these robots doing the trading for them will be able to snowball and bully the regulators and the stock exchanges and don't forget like I said last week the stock exchanges are getting paid really paid by these people so the, the high frequency traders are, are buying their way into respectability sort of we'll see and I think we're, we're facing some kind of showdown between the pretty well-to-do and numerically uh, more significant uh, non-computer traders and then these high-frequency traders who, who have a lot of lobbyists and they have a lot of money, but they don't have as many numbers. And we'll see what happens in terms of the tug-of-war about what's going on with that. Meanwhile... There was an article in, uh, I guess, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, not Business Week, but just Bloomberg.com. I don't even know what the difference is. Uh, but they had an article with an interview with Adair Turner, who is chairman of the UK's Financial Services Authority. And he was going to talk to the US audience and talk about how high frequency trading is a really bad idea. Uh, high frequency traders have come under increased regulatory scrutiny following the so-called flash crash on May 2010. You're sick of hearing me talk about that already. Uh, but here was the interesting part of this article. A proposed European tax on financial transactions could cut high frequency trading as much as 90% in some market segments, a European Commission official said last year. It's unclear what, now this is Turner, the dude from the UK Financial Services Authority says, it's unclear what positive social value high-frequency trading delivers. And if it delivers no value, but it makes its individual traders richer, then some subtle and unnecessary rent extraction process is at work, which is exactly what the dude in Australia I was talking about last week said. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Again, I think... We're headed for some sort of clash of the titans going on here. And I got some popcorn. I got a front row seat to watch this whole thing go down. Uh, there's a high-frequency trading firm called Optiver, which was fined $14 million over the use of something called the hammer to influence oil prices. And I'm not talking about Tom DeLay. <laughs> that is a huge laugh among people who have followed U.S. politics in the House of Representatives for the last 15 years. Because, see, there's this guy named Tom DeLay, and he had a nickname known as the Hammer. So that is pretty funny, don't you think so? 
Shut the hell up! Anyway, uh, yeah, in a ruling that came down just two days after U.S. President Barack Obama proposed a renewed campaign against illegal oil trading schemes, the Amsterdam-based company agreed to disgorge $1 million in profits and pay a $13 million civil penalty over allegations that it used a rapid-fire tool nicknamed the Hammer to influence U.S. oil prices in 2007. It was the first case brought by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission... CFTC, in its 2008 effort to curb market malfeasance, launched as prices soared toward a near record $150 a barrel in the middle of that year. So it's a very interesting process now. We're seeing the CFTC. Every time the CFTC shows up in the business press, I'm like, yeah, what are they doing now? Go get them, CFTC, because they're always on the cutting edge of trying to stop these Wall Street scumbags from ruining our economy. All right, what other news is there on Wall Street? Now, listen, people, I need to tell you something. There was just a huge break in between those two stories. I went to see a movie. I ate Chinese food. I watched 30 Rock. Whatever. Getting back to it. There was an article in the Chicago Tribune recently where uh, somebody interviewed the head of the SEC, Mary Shapiro, the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and a lot of her answers were pretty weak because... You know, I don't know. I, I could speculate about why they're weak, but it doesn't matter. The point is, I'm not very confident that the SEC is going to do much to stop this high-frequency trading brouhaha. Because uh, the question was, how can you persuade individual investors that the game isn't rigged? Uh, and she said, oh, for me, a lot of it was crystallized by the flash crash in May 2010. The idea that the very infrastructure of the market itself could cause the stocks of great companies to go from $40 to $0.02 cents was just beyond anybody's imagination. The SEC's job is to make sure the infrastructure of the marketplace works and that the markets are fair and honest. And the question then was, what's the likelihood of a recurrence of the flash crash? And she said, I can't predict that. But the fact that the market's must take a time out if there's been a dramatic move is a fundamental change. We've asked a lot of questions about high-frequency trading. You know what? The SEC should be asking questions, but then it also should go to the next phase of regulating it. And I'm not confident that's what they're going to do. I mean, we'll see, but... I don't know. I'm skeptical. Uh, and then finally, to end the economics news this week, there's a really interesting story about people, these two British twin brothers who pretended to have a stock-picking robot. So this is a perfect confluence of the different elements of uh, stock-trading robots and people committing fraud on Wall Street. Uh, so... The- <laughs> A pair of British twin brothers fooled thousands of U.S. investors who believed that a fictitious stock-picking robot called Marl they hyped on the Internet could spot penny stocks set to soar in price, the SEC said in a civil lawsuit. The pretend robot's picks were really stocks that the brothers were allegedly being paid by stock promoters to tout, the SEC said. The SEC charged the brothers Alexander John Hunter and Thomas Edward Hunter with defrauding 75,000 largely U.S. investors who paid at least $1.2 million for a newsletter subscription and home robot software used to access moral stock picks, according to a civil complaint. So they started this scheme in 2007 when they were 16 years old, and now they're, they're I don't know what they're faced with. I guess they're going to be fined or something. I doubt they'll go to jail. I mean, they're in the UK. We don't have the ability to send them to prison, but I don't know. The, 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 the Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Um... They had built, well, they had falsely said that uh, they had built a computer trading model for Goldman Sachs, and uh, 
I don't know what's going to happen to them. Who knows? Probably not much. But it's nice to see that the SEC will go after fake robots trading on Wall Street. But the real robots, they can do whatever they want. All right, let's talk about education. First of all, more news from Afghanistan. About 150 Afghan schoolgirls were poisoned on Tuesday after drinking contaminated water at a high school in the country's north. Apparently, this was religious fundamentalists who are opposed to girls going to school. And, uh, yeah, this was the work of those who are against girls' education or irresponsible armed individuals, said Jan Mohammed Nabizada, a spokesman for Education Department in northern Takar province. And they suffered. The girls suffered from headaches and vomiting. They were, some of them were in critical condition. Others were able to go home after being treated. It's really messed up, obviously. Um, yeah. So, ah. Meanwhile, uh, there was a six-year-old girl in Georgia who threw a tantrum in her kindergarten class, and she got arrested and handcuffed by police. And this is one of those cases where it's easy to go, oh, how ridiculous, how horrible, how stupid. But I don't know. It sounded like this girl was going pretty crazy. Uh, the news coming out of Georgia today revolves around a six-year-old kindergartner who threw such a violent tantrum that school officials called police, who handcuffed her, according to them, for her own safety. Uh, many are siding with the police. I agree with the school. Let, uh, let the police cuff her. If anyone at the school would have touched her, the parents would have sued and said how wrong they were, said one comment, one commenter at the website in Georgia or whatever. Um, and, you know, this is one of those cases where uh, school officials told WMAZ they feared the child was in danger to herself and others. She was crying, tearing items off the wall, biting a doorknob, trying to break a glass frame, and jumping on top of a paper shredder. At one point, she reportedly knocked over a shelf, injuring the school principal, according to the Associated Press. Now, it seems to me like, duh, like how can you not control a kindergartner? Or you got to call the police for a kindergarten, a six-year-old? Um, but I also don't like to second guess what goes on in a school because I know that lots of people do that with the school I teach at. And I don't like when they say, oh, I know how easy it is for you to do your job. So I don't want to try to say that about other people's jobs. But on the other hand, this does seem a little ridiculous that they had to call police in because someone's throwing a temper tantrum. Um, so I don't know. I just think it's kind of messed up, but. Anyway, there's another story about, um, this is from the New York Times wellness section, and this is about ADHD, uh, um, hyperactivity disorder. Uh, what does ADHD stand for? Um, attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder. I got it, Duchess, thank you. This is why I record when she's not around, because then she's telling me things and trying to help out. I don't need that. Next, next, next thing I know, Robert will be back. Anyway, uh, so the article says diagnoses of attention hyperactivity disorder among children have increased dramatically in recent years, rising 22 percent from 2003 to 2007, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But many experts believe that it may not be the epidemic that it appears to be. Many children are given a diagnosis of ADHD, researchers say, when in fact they have another problem, a sleep disorder like sleep apnea. The confusion may account for a significant number of ADHD cases in children, and the drugs used to treat them may only be exacerbating the problem and this is something that I've actually been concerned about for a while because I remember seeing I believe it was a frontline documentary one time that talked about it was a frontline documentary and I'll find the thing and put it in the notes because it's all about how 
uh, diagnosis of ADHD just exploded in the 1990s, and it was right after the federal government decided to classify ADHD as something that falls under uh, a certain classification of which uh, conditions for students are treatable uh, by federal standards and which ones are like learning disorders and the reason that was significant is because it brought uh, it meant that insurers insurance companies would start approving drugs and start paying for drugs that they wouldn't have paid for before and the interesting thing about it was the 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 lobbying group that was pushing to get congress to recognize ADHD hyperactivity disorder and attention deficit disorder as a recognized federally uh, acknowledged syndrome and and learning disorder the lobbying group that was pushing for that was made up at least in part of drug companies trying to get their drugs into the you know mouths basically of students and so you know I'm not one of these people who says oh there's a conspiracy they're trying to drug kids you know but they again they stood to benefit materially from having this government classification and I don't believe that that classification decision was made um, only in the terms of science and in the in the interest of of what's best for kids. And I understand that there are kids who have an actual disorder, and there's there may be chemical problems or some sort of genetic uh, difficulty, or for whatever reasons the kid has trouble paying attention. But I also believe that these drug companies are making a lot of money and. Unfortunately, I think some kids are learning some kinds of helplessness, and the fact that they're being told you have this disorder means that in some cases, and I've seen students do this, they sort of have this attitude of, well, I have a disorder, you know, I didn't take my meds, or, you know, my meds are making me sleepy, or whatever it is, and meanwhile, there's, uh, and Sir Ken Robinson, I think, is the guy who had this really interesting TED talk about, or maybe, no, it was an RSA animate talk, and I'll find that thing too, and he talked about um, the fact that we're basically anesthetizing kids at the same time as they're being surrounded by more and more aesthetic elements. And so we're doing this really weird jujitsu thing where we're trying to tell kids, be numb to all this exciting distraction around you, but at the same time, we're surrounding them with more and more distractions. And so it's only natural, I think, that kids are A, confused, and B, don't have a lot of practice kind of focusing in on things because they're sort of being told, here's a thing that will make you focus. And as we know from the documentary TV show The Simpsons, it's only a matter of time before people start wrapping themselves in tinfoil and coming to believe that Major League Baseball is spying on them when their, uh, you know, their meds start act- making them go a little nutso. So then Mark McGuire shows up and he hits a few dingers and then the satellite crashes and Mo makes a quip about, May God help you if that thing carried the Spice Channel. All right, we got to move on to Killer Robots. Uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom! What, what? Ah, never mind. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? The interesting news story, there's more stories coming out about this DARPA challenge. They're trying to get people to make robots that are more user-friendly and all the rest of it can use keys to jab us in the nose and all the stuff I talked about before. Uh, The interesting thing about the article I saw this week from cleantechnica.com was that some of the robots that DARPA wants, they're interested in having 
friendly eyes on the robots. And this the article sort of skewed talking about green jobs for robots and robotic devices are performing manufacturing maintenance and repair tasks and yada, yada, yada in the solar and wind energy fields and robots for environmental monitoring, surveying and data collection are under development, blah, blah, blah. Later on in the article, it says, according to the De Department of Defense writer Jessica Tozer, the anthropomorphic eyes have an important function. Their calming appearance can have a significant effect on the ability of human operators to act under stress. So it's this whole thing about we got to get the humans to react positively to the robots near them. And then it's like, oh, what happens? What's that for? That's so that people are lulled into a sense of sleep when the robots are like, you have 20 seconds to comply. The real problem with the ED-209 was not that it had lethal firepower, but that it didn't have friendly eyes. So that's what we got to do. We got to get friendly eyes. Meanwhile, Forbes had an article from Dave Thier, who is a contributor to Forbes, and the headline is "Robot Guards Patrolling Prisons in South Korea." According to Fizz.org, the South Korean government has begun testing robot prison guards at a facility in Pohang. The guards right now are equipped with several cameras, a microphone, and software that allows them to analyze the inmates for any signs of danger. Then they can alert the human guards. And then this is in the article. Still, it can't be long before they get arms and missiles and the like. So... That's interesting. How long will it be before the privatized prisons being built in the U.S. start putting robots on the job? And and then they're like, you have 20 seconds to comply, and it becomes Ed 209, but with friendlier eyes. In non-killer robot-related etc. news, there was no Pulitzer Prize awarded this year for fiction. Uh, there were three finalists, uh, the book called Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson, uh, Swamplandia by Karen Russell, and The Pale King, an unfinished novel by David Foster Wallace, who died a few years ago. And, um, yeah, that's just kind of odd. Apparently, this is not unprecedented. Um, there are, from what I understand, there are three judges for the Pulitzer panel, and the fact that there were three books, three finalists, indicates that um, they probably reached a deadlock, and they just decided not to award a prize, which I think that's weird. I think one, if I were one of those three people, I'd be like, okay, look, I'd rather it went to Swamplandia, but you know, we'll go to Train Dreams or whatever. Uh, I just thought that was kind of bizarre. And then two amusing stories uh, to finish off the etc. news. One is I found out about this new disorder. I guess maybe I shouldn't say it's a new disorder. Um, it's called nomophobia. And it's the fear of being out of mobile phone contact. And the term is an abbreviation for no mobile phone phobia, no mophobia. It was coined during a study by the UK Post Office who commissioned YouGov, a UK-based research organization, to look at anxiety suffered by mobile phone users. The study found that nearly 53% of mobile phone users in Britain tend to be anxious when they lose their phone, run out of battery or credit, or have no network coverage. So apparently this is a real thing, and I don't doubt it. I'm not surprised, really, because it's... I see my students suffering from this all the time. Now, I don't have a mobile phone. I mean, we have one, but I never use it. But I do have my iPod, and I take it pretty much everywhere. So I, I can't claim to be completely free of this, but I just think it's weird that we've got this anxiety now. It's like, I can't be without my precious. And finally, uh, <laughs> there's a, I'm not making this up. There's a, there's a sculpture of Sarah Palin that also is a barbecue smoker. There's a Chicago artist named Jay Taylor Wallace, and he made a sculpture that also cooks meat, 
and it's Sarah Palin, and her it, she has an enormous mouth, and I guess that's where you put the meat, and then you cook stuff, and then it comes out her head, and it's really weird, but the guy said, I think she'd dig it. She'd probably love it if she saw it. I mean, <laughs> this guy sounds like such a weirdo. I mean, this is a quote from the article. I mean, it's pretty fierce, and she's pretty fierce, so I think they'd jive. And, oh, boy, I just don't know what to say. There's pictures on the website of this thing in action during the daytime and at night. And as you can imagine, a huge metal Sarah Palin head with fire in the mouth looks quite interesting uh, at night. Let's talk about hip-hop. I've been following this week about hip-hop has to do with this hologram that happened at the Coachella Music Festival. Um, Tupac was on stage at the Coachella Music Festival. It was a hologram. And at one point he said, I mean, he was performing with Snoop Dogg and it was a song he'd done in the past. But the interesting thing is at one point he goes, what's up, Coachella? Now, Coachella Music Festival got founded like three years after he died. So the fact that Okay, so clearly they're synthesizing his voice or somebody else's voice who sounds like him. I haven't found any information about where the voice came from, but it sounded a lot like Tupac. Now, obviously there's going to be some people probably who sound like Tupac, so maybe they had someone else doing the voice. I don't really know. But Dr. Dre, apparently, who owns uh, the rights to some of Tupac's music, he spent close to $500,000 on this, and... Tupac's mother, Afini Shakur, who is a really interesting person, she wrote a book with Jasmine Guy called The Evolution of a Revolutionary. It's a really good book. I encourage everybody to read it. And also, if you're interested in Tupac, you should read the book uh, Holler If You Hear Me by Michael Eric Dyson because it's a. I didn't. I never thought that Tupac was a very interesting person. I always thought he was sort of like, okay, he was a gangster rapper when it first went from, you know, sort of the NWA style to thug life. He was the one who transformed it into thug life, which is true, but there's a lot more to Tupac's story. And I encourage people to read Michael Eric Dyson's book because it really sheds a lot of important light on who Tupac was as a person. And in my opinion, some of the the tragedy that Tupac, you know, his mother was a Black Panther, and like he grew up in the Black Panther revolutionary life, and a lot of what happened to him was that he he got real sick of living in this sort of deprived existence where you're giving up everything in order to try to make some revolutionary change so that future generations will have it better. And at some point, Tupac was like, you know what, I'm sick of having nothing. I want to have some good stuff in life. And so I think he he sort of made some decisions artistically and otherwise that had to do with you know, trying to, to, to be successful. And a lot of his lyrics ended up being about like, I'm going to shoot my enemies and I'm going to wild out of the club and this and that. And I mean, he had some songs that were still about making change and fighting the system and all that, but mostly it wasn't. And even the song changes, which a lot of people point to as an example of Tupac sort of standing up for change. You know, he samples Bruce Hornsby in the range with the whole, that's just the way it is song. Um, but the, the interesting thing is, you know, 
the chorus of that song says that's just the way it is some things will never change don't you believe it and then but tupac's version took out that last part about don't you believe it and it became a very different song uh, because the lyrics were sort of about how, oh, this is the way things are, and, and it's hard for us to change, and it seems like things aren't never going to change, and uh, it, it's a little more despairing. Now, you know, given the sort of situation Tupac was living in, I can understand why he'd be a little more despairing than Bruce Hornsby and the range is, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so this hologram came out. And so the point I was making there is that uh, his mother, Afini Shakur, gave the okay for this hologram. So there's a sense among, like, Davy D reported on this and, and other people who are talking about it, the, the response has been generally very positive, and people have pointed out that, okay, Natalie Cole did her singing of Unforgettable with her father after he died, and, and you know, this isn't the first time there have been holograms even in music. Uh, Most Deaf apparently performed with... Um, the African-American astronaut Leland Melvin, and I don't know, I, I think it's it's an interesting phenomenon. I'm a little nervous because I also remember when Fred Astaire died, and then he ended up in uh, vacuum cleaner commercials dancing with vacuum cleaners, and I'm worried that this is a slippery slope, and we might see Tupac eventually doing like, yo, bust it, Sprite rocks, you know, ads for Sprite or something. Um, so I don't know. There's also an article about the hologram in Business Week, and uh, the question is, you know, is Elvis next? And uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, um, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I'm interested to see where it goes next, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a little nervous because I worry that this could be the first step toward sort of pimping out Tupac's image in a way that is not okay. But it's early, so I'm going to reserve judgment. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Let's talk about the quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. This week's quote comes from Henry David Thoreau. I'm going to assume everybody out there knows who Thoreau was. If you don't know, you're... Ah, what the heck, man? You ought to know. No, don't do that. Ah, Henry David Thoreau was a naturalist. He spent like two years living at Walden Pond in a little hut living near Emerson's house. And Emerson, uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, no, yeah, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, he was a good um, naturalist and essayist. He wrote a really good essay called Circles. And Henry David Thoreau, um, he also wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience, which is really important. Uh, he refused to pay taxes during the uh, Spanish-American War. And he... Um, he said that he would rather go to prison, and so he went to prison. And he had a friend who came by to see him when he was in jail, and he said, Henry, what are you doing in that prison cell? And Henry, you know, who knew that his friend knew what was going on and why he hadn't paid his taxes, he said to his friend, why are you not in this prison cell with me? So uh, Thoreau said at one point, rather than love, than money, than fame, give me truth. And I say, Amen. All right, people, that's the end of it. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, my website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and other stuff that I've done. Uh, Shout-outs this week to Bongo the Sane, who says, Robert for president. Really? You re- really? Robert for president, huh? I, uh, no. I, no. And in fact, Robert for nothing. He's never coming back, so don't worry about it. Yes, I am. Shut up, Robert. I, look, 
I don't have time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb pauses or me saying the wrong thing that I didn't get to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people, and please get in touch with me if you have feedback or questions or news articles you think would be interesting for me to have a look at. Send them my way, esp at fbesp.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.